I'm glad to be back. I'm going to try not to get overexcited because my energy is still not what it was. Uh, so if I run out of energy, I'm going to give my notes to somebody in the front row and you can, uh, you can take over. Um, but let, let's pray and ask for God's help uh, as we come to his word. Let's pray. Um, Father, thank you for already what we've been able to, to share in together as a church family. Thank you that we've been able to, to stand and sing together of the beautiful name of Jesus. Um, thank you that we've been able together to share in the joy of uh, this young family and make promises together to uh, walk with them on the journey. Um, and Father, we want to now ask for your, your help and your inspiration as we open up your word. And we pray that the Holy Spirit, who inspired these things to be written, would come and speak to our hearts words that would bring us life and bring us freedom and bring us hope and bring us healing. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, so, um, for those of you who don't know, or if you can't remember, because we've taken a wee break for a few weeks, uh, we, um, we're, we're thinking about this, this beautiful word gospel. Uh, we're thinking about, we, we want to be gospel people. We want to be a gospel community. We want to be faithful in our generation to the good news that's been handed down to us. Uh, and so in this series, we've been, we've been looking at the gospel all through the biblical story, and we've been dropping in on Genesis and the Exodus story and the Psalms and the prophets and the parables of Jesus. Uh, and now this morning, we come to the gospel in the book of Acts. Um, I think as we think about what it means to be faithful gospel people, um, one of the great privileges we have is to be able to eavesdrop on the preaching of the first Christians in the book of Acts and see what was the message that they carried into the world. Uh, and there are lots of examples all through the book of Acts. Um, I, I find it interesting that each one is a little bit different. Some of them are long, longer, some of them are shorter. Um, when they talk to a Jewish audience, the message is a little bit from a different angle to when they're talking to a, a Greek or Gentile audience. And yet, certain themes are repeated. As you go through Acts, you can see a lot of similarities in the way that they preach. Um, and so we could have gone anywhere maybe in the book of Acts, but we're going to listen together to the very first sermon in the book of Acts, in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost. Um, just to give you a little bit of context uh, for this sermon, uh, it's just after the gift of the Holy Spirit, the, the sound like a rushing wind and the, the tongues of fire, and the people have been, the people who have been watching have been surprised and confused by the miracle of languages that happened. Each person heard the apostles preaching in their own language. And Peter, when he, when he stood up to speak, first of all, quoted the prophet Joel. We're not going to read that bit. Um, but uh, the promise in the prophet Joel of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So he reads that to help people understand what is going on. And we're going to pick it up there and read what Peter says as he goes on. So Acts chapter 2, reading from verse 22, says this, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. 
Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said this about him, and here Peter quotes from Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, in Psalm 110, the Lord, sorry, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, he's coming near the end of his sermon, you can tell here, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 people were added to their number that day. wonder what you notice as we read that about the way Peter preached about what he talked about, about the way that he talked about it. Uh, what can we learn today from eavesdropping on this extraordinary moment uh, on the day of Pentecost? Um, I want to suggest uh, five things kind of, that I'm going to talk about very quickly uh, that we, we can notice about the way that Peter preached. Uh, and the first one is very simple, is that the gospel is all about Jesus. It begins and ends with Jesus. So Peter begins by say, talking about Jesus of Nazareth, 
And I don't know if you noticed that I love the wee phrase as he goes through. He says, this Jesus, this Jesus. And he keeps bringing the message back again and again to Jesus. And so very simple place to start for you and I to be gospel people is to be Jesus people. It is to be radically, stubbornly, relentlessly focused on Jesus and his story, to never get tired of talking about Jesus and coming back uh, to the message of Jesus and the story of Jesus. So that's the first thing. The gospel is all about Jesus from first to last. Second thing is this, is that the gospel is about the life of Jesus. Uh, and that might come as a surprise because sometimes we're in a rush to get to the, the cross. We know that the cross is at the heart of the gospel and that's right and we're going to come to that in a moment. But first, Peter talks about his life, how Jesus was accredited to you, by God to you, by miracles and wonders and signs. The life of Jesus demonstrated something that we need to pay attention to, that we need to witness. Um, people, people often comment, and it's very true, that when you read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they, they give over about a third of their space to talking about the cross, and that's extraordinary. Uh, not many people, when they write a biography, spend a third of the time talking about the death of the person that they're, they're writing about. So that tells us that the death of Jesus is unusually important. And yet, they do spend two-thirds of the time talking about his life. They don't, you don't begin the Gospels and they go straight to the cross. The life of Jesus is really important. And so if we're going to be gospel people in a gospel community, we need to tell the story of the life of Jesus, of what he did, of how he loved, of his miracles, of his teaching, and all the rest. There are things there that we need to notice. Thirdly, the gospel is about the death of Jesus. This is the heart and the crux of the message. Even the word crux comes from the cross. Um, I don't know if you noticed as we read it, Peter tells that part of the story in one short verse, in verse 23. He doesn't labor it. He doesn't spin it out. He, Peter doesn't emotionally manipulate. He doesn't try to build up the emotion of the people uh, he's talking to. But at the same time, I wonder, did you notice he is incredibly blunt in what he says? He says to the, the crowd gathered in Jerusalem, you put him to death. And at, later on in the sermon in verse 36, he returns to that theme and says, this Jesus whom you crucified. And if you were to read on in the book of Acts in chapter 3, he's even more blunt in his next sermon. He says to his, his audience, you killed the author of life. How's that for a line in a sermon? You killed the author of life. What, what do we make of those very blunt words? You put him to death. This Jesus whom you crucified, you killed the author of life. Maybe you and I, we might like to say, well, Peter is addressing that crowd in Jerusalem because many of them were the crowd who had called out for Jesus to be killed. They were there. And so they had his blood on their hands. And so it's right that Peter spoke that way to them. And yet I want to say something a little bit uncomfortable for you and I this morning. Uh, the uncomfortable truth 
is that those very blunt words apply to all of us, to any crowd of human beings in any time and place. If it's true, as we've been talking about in this series, that Jesus went to the cross to bear the sins of many, to bear the sins of the world, then as one of our songs says, it was my sins that held him there. It was our sins that held him there. We crucified him. We killed the author of life. Um, Fleming Rutledge uh, tells a story which I find really striking about being at an Easter service uh, and in the, the, the tradition in the church that she's part of, they have a kind of very dramatic Easter service where they, they dramatically read the whole story of the cross and the, the events around the death of Jesus and different people take different parts and there's a part in the dramatic reading where the congregation have to take the part of the crowd and shout out, crucify him, crucify him. And Fleming Rutledge tells the story that after one of those services, as she was at the door, uh, a very respectable, very well-dressed lady said to her, do you know, I never say crucify him. I just can't do it. And Fleming Rutledge makes this comment. She says, that lady meant well, and it seemed like she expected to be congratulated for saying that. But this is what she says, but she had missed the whole point. She saw herself as one of the virtuous and above the common herd. And so she had missed the whole point of the story. Um, by contrast to that lady, um, I was very struck by this, just reading about it recently, that uh, the, paint, the great painter Rembrandt, when Rembrandt painted the raising of the cross of Jesus, Rembrandt painted himself right at the heart of the story. That's a self-portrait of himself. What is Rembrandt saying when he does that? He's saying, I was there. I have his blood on my hands. He is not distancing himself from the crowd. Um, some of you who are my age or uh, older will remember a, a song by U2 on the album Rattle and Hum way back, I don't know, 80s probably. Um, uh, it was sung by B.B. King on the album. Uh, but this lyric written by Bono of U2, he says, I was there when they crucified my Lord. I held the scabbard when the soldier drew his sword. I threw the dice when they pierced his side. It's not an extraordinary thing to say. And often we'd, we'd often like to do anything to avoid that conclusion. And maybe you can relate to that lady at the door of the church. Uh, often we're, we're kind of like a child saying, I wasn't there, it wasn't me, it was those bad boys who did it. It was them. But as Fleming Rutledge rightly says, when we refuse to put ourselves in the picture and put ourselves in the crowd, we miss out on the healing and the freedom and the salvation that Jesus offers. We miss the opportunity to be remade from the inside out. And so although it's an uncomfortable thing to put yourself in that crowd like Rembrandt, I want to encourage you that it's the most life-giving thing you can ever do. Because this is how the story goes on. Uh, fourthly, the gospel is about the resurrection of Jesus. Um, I wonder, did you notice as I read it, that, that that actually, I think, is the dominant theme of Peter's sermon. Uh, one verse on the cross 
where he preaches that really clearly as the heart and the crux of the message. And then many verses on the resurrection. He says it in lots of different ways. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead. Uh, same verse, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Verse 31, he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Um, so important for you and I to remember the message of the cross will crush people unless we immediately follow it with the message of the resurrection. Um, and you can trace this through the book of Acts. Every time Peter delivers those blunt words, you crucified him. What's the next words to come out of Peter's, Peter's mouth? But God raised him. That's immediately on the heels of that potentially crushing word. He gives the word that God has raised them from the dead, that the death of Jesus was not the end of the story. And so our sin and the blood that we have on our hands is not the end of the story. And in his own way, I think Bono expressed this hope immediately after saying, I was there and I held the scabbard and I threw the dice. He says, but I've seen love conquer the great divide. I think that's his way of speaking of the hope of the resurrection and the victory that Jesus has won. The gospel is about the resurrection of Jesus. And the fifth thing I want to notice uh, in Peter's sermon is that the gospel is about Jesus the King. It's about the kingship of Jesus. I don't know if you remember when we started this series, uh, we talked about the word gospel uh, in Greek, uh, euangelion, uh, which carries this sense of a change of regime, uh, of being good news about a king and a kingdom that's kind of caught up in the word gospel. Uh, and whenever the early Christians in the book of Acts preached the gospel, they blew that trumpet really loudly. <laughs> this announcement that there is a king and a kingdom that is breaking in. And you saw it in the sermon that we read this morning. Jesus is a king greater even than David, who was Israel's greatest king. Jesus is the one that David himself calls Lord uh, Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. And so in verse 36, kind of the, the, the conclusion of his whole sermon, he says, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, uh, which means the anointed one, which means the king. And so the gospel is good news about Jesus the king. Um, so there's a little summary uh, in this sermon in the book of Acts, the, the gospel is good news about Jesus and about his life and about his death and about his resurrection and about his kingship. How do we respond whenever we hear a message like that? Um, the crowd in the story that we read asked the question, what shall we do? If all of that is true, how do we respond? It's not a message you can kind of just stand at a distance and and listen to and find interesting. It calls for some kind of personal response. It says in the story, those who heard it were cut to the heart and they asked brothers, what shall we do? How do we respond to a message like that? And Peter, in his answer, gives them really just one word. Peter says, repent. Um, I wonder what that word means to you. Um, 
it's a word that a lot of people can find a bit strange or a bit puzzling or a bit off-putting. Um, I often go back to a song by Leonard Cohen where he sings, when they said, repent, I wondered what they meant. Um, a lot of people are puzzled by that, that word. Um, some people think the word repent simply means to feel bad about our sins and about our part in putting Jesus on the cross. And certainly that might be part of it. We might respond with sorrow uh, to, to the message that we hear and realizing that we are implicated and realizing uh, uh, what we have done. But I want to suggest that sorrow in itself is not what repentance means. The word repent simply means to turn around. It means a total reversal and reconfiguration and reorientation of your life in light of the realization that Jesus is king. Uh, maybe to put it in uh, really simple terms, it means giving up the throne of your life and acknowledging that ruling my own life has only led to mess and ruin and disaster and surrendering to Jesus as Lord and Messiah and King. That's what's involved in repentance. Certainly it may involve that sorrow over our sin, but it means a complete reorientation of life. Maybe we could describe it as kind of like a Copernican revolution. Do you remember that time in history when people thought everything in the universe revolved around the earth? And then they realized that actually everything revolved around the sun and people went a bit dizzy with trying to get their head around that. And something like that is involved in repentance. It's a movement from a, a life that is centered on me to a life that is centered on Jesus, the Messiah, and the King. And so you can see that repentance is an uncomfortable word and an uncomfortable experience, perhaps. And we often kick against it because we want to hold on to our own sovereignty and we want to stay on the throne and we want to rule our own lives. But actually, repentance is one of our best words because repentance is the doorway that leads to lots of other words beginning with RE, like renewal and regeneration and restoration and renaissance. And we could go on and on. Uh, the, the, the change from the inside that Fleming Rutledge talked about of being renewed from the inside. The doorway to that is through this difficult thing of repentance. Um, if you and I re respond in that way, if we bow the knee to Jesus as king, if we get off the throne and invite him to be king, um, what is the promise? This is kind of where I want to I wanna finish. What is the promise for those who bow the knee to Jesus? Um, and I, I think really at the end of Peter's sermon, there, there's two promises, or maybe it's one promise with two parts, and they're both really important. Uh, the first part of the promise is the forgiveness of your sins, the, the wonder of the beauty of the glory of the cross is that in the very same moment when we see the ugly horror of what we have done, that we have killed the author of life, we realize that he has taken the weight of our guilt on himself. And we are not being asked to carry that weight. Um, there's an old hymn that I go back to often that says, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. 
Praise the Lord, O my soul. Right? That's the, the message. In the same moment, we see the horror of our sin and we realize that he has taken it. Um, the, the story we read talks about baptism and you can see how baptism also provides a powerful picture of that washing away of our sins. It's one of the reasons why I, I love the fact that we do our baptisms in the sea, in the ocean, uh, which is bigger than we can imagine because it shows us that our sin, no matter how ugly and deep and dark it might be, is wildly outdone by the grace of God. We sang about it earlier. No matter, no matter how dark our hearts might be or the things we've done or the things that weigh on our conscience, his mercy is more. It's wildly outdone by the grace of God. And so that's the first part of the promise is the forgiveness of your sins. But that's not all. The other part of the promise is this, is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't make his long journey so that you could end up just forgiven, but still alone and still powerless to change. That would be a kind of sad half gospel if you were sitting forgiven, but you still had no power to change and you still were far away from God. The goal of the gospel is this, is God coming to make his home within you. That's the goal of the gospel, filling your life with his own presence and power and remaking you from the inside out. Not only the forgiveness of your sins, but also the gift of the Holy Spirit, God making his home within you. I wonder, does that sound like good news to you this morning? Um, I wonder, did you notice all through this series, we've kept noticing that the, the keynote of the gospel is always joy. And I wonder, did you notice right at the heart of what we read this morning, uh, as Peter quotes from Psalm 16, says, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. You will fill me with joy in your presence. The authenticating, authentic note of the gospel is joy and our tongues are loosened for praise. And the very last thing is this. We ask, who is this promise for, this promise of the gospel, this promise of forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit? Peter leaves us in no doubt. He says it's for you, and it's for your children, and it's for all those who are far off. To my mind, that includes pretty much everybody. Um, it's for you. I wonder where you are this morning in terms of your response to this gospel. I wonder if you experienced that forgiveness of sins and that gift of God's presence and power in your life. It's for you. Um, but it's also for your children and it's also for all who are far off. And so I want to encourage you as we finish, this is good news to go and share, go and tell it on the mountain <laughs> right? of what Jesus has done, of what Jesus is continuing to do uh, in our lives and in our world. Um, let's pray together and then we're going to sing a song of response. Let's pray. Um, Father, I want to pray uh, this morning. I want to pray that you would help us not to shy away from the part of this message which is uncomfortable. Uh, that we can't stand at a distance and say, it wasn't me. 
that we are implicated in the sin of the world and we are part of the crowd to whom Peter can say, you killed the author of life. Father, I want to pray you would help us not to shy away from that. Um, But Father, I also want to pray that right on the heels of that uncomfortable truth, we would hear the glad tidings that God raised him from the dead, that Jesus did not stay in the grave. And so today, there is available for us and for anyone who believes, for anyone who responds in repentance and faith, there is available forgiveness and there is available the gift of your Holy Spirit, bringing renewal and transformation and freedom and healing and life to every part of our lives. Father, I want to pray that every single one of us in the building and outside the building and in the cafe and listening at home, that we would know that this is for us. Father, if any of us haven't made a response in our hearts and in our lives to this message, would you give us the courage to do it today, to do it this morning? To open wide the door of our heart and let Jesus the King come and be enthroned there. To give up the throne of our life and invite you to come and reign. And Father, I want to pray for all of us. Would you help us this week um, to live this good news, to believe this good news, and to carry it to our neighbours and to our children and to those who are far off, and to go and tell it on the mountains that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.